Welcome to the Report Card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. America's higher education system is frequently called the best in the world, but it doesn't seem to be pleasing too many folks at the moment. Critiques concerning high tuition costs, debt burdens, poor returns on investment, and inequitable access have been perennial favorites, but recently, a more fundamental set of concerns has taken center stage. Increasingly, political intolerance and polarization is infiltrating college campuses, creating a political and ideological echo chamber amongst staff, administrators, and students, isolating and defaming those with opposing or dissenting views, and crowding out speech, and to some, allowing illiberalism to pervert the original purpose of the university, the pursuit of truth. In response, a new group of individuals is taking a bold approach, starting a new university. That project, announced this month, will be the University of Austin, and here to discuss the why and how behind it is a founding trustee, Pano Canolis. Pano recently served as president of St. John's College in Annapolis, and prior to that, as dean of the Honors College at Valparaiso University and a professor at Loyola in Chicago. Pano, welcome to the report card. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation, Matt. So, Pano, you and your compatriots are literally starting a university. That's pretty big. And and I want to get to the, the details goals and aspirations for the University of Austin. But I think a lot of this starts with problem definition. So what is the problem in higher education that the University of Austin intends to redress? I think I would take it to the sort of 30,000 foot level to begin with and say that I think the problem in higher education is a subset of the problem that we're having in society and the culture at large. And that is the kind of the kind of radical bifurcation we're seeing, whereby you know polarization is accelerating, uh, the the means of communicating across differences are breaking down, our ability to empathize um, with people who necessarily might not necessarily share our opinions um, is diminishing. I mean, all of that is endemic. I don't have. I mean, that's something we all know. The question for me and for those of us involved in this project is. What role has the university played in, in these problems and what role might the university play in finding solutions? So when you talk about these problems at universities, one of, um, and, and certainly it's, it's part of the broader culture, but in universities, you kind of have a crucible where some of these things really get highlighted. It strikes me that when we look in the headlines, we see these things often from elite schools. And I'm not sure what the reason behind that is. Is it because we only talk about elite schools so very much because they eat up so much of, uh, of, of the, the print space? And that leads to the question of how widespread in universities do you think these issues are? Are, are they everywhere or are they concentrated in particular enclaves of the higher ed space? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, if you look at the, the incidents that we have seen uh, related to you know, speakers being canceled or students reporting that they self-censor, uh, I think it's it's pretty pervasive across higher education. I think we hear about things in the headlines more from schools that are generally more in the headlines, the elite schools. 
But I think it's the problem isn't necessarily just the things that we hear about. Um, there's a kind of, let's say, culture of intimidation, I think, that results from that can result from just a few incidents. So, you know, uh, you know, the way I would put it is if you're if you live in a neighborhood um, and it's been a relatively peaceful neighborhood and then suddenly, shockingly, somebody's mugged out on the street in front of you, it changes the tone of the neighborhood and changes the way people people live and how they live around each other and what they do, even if it's a relatively isolated incident. And then if a second incident happens, then people really start to panic, even if the chances of it happening to them are relatively slim. And so, you know, when when professors are canceled at institutions or students um, feel that they're that they're silenced, the, the ripple effect is significant. It makes other people keep their heads down. It makes other professors change their syllabi or worry about what they're teaching in classes, it makes students keep students from being fully themselves in front of other students if they're afraid of ostracizing, you know, if they're being ostracized in that. So it's, you know, there's the kind of, you know, the, the let's say reported incidents of things that happen, but I think the consequences of that are, are really widespread. Yeah, and I, I I certainly appreciate this sort of division you're making here, right? We see these sort of high-profile, shiny examples that are glaringly indicative of, of cancel culture and, and these things. But we're also talking about a, a culture at universities and among students and faculty that sort of leads to this self-censorship that is sort of harder to track. I suppose my question is, is this the same problem? just manifesting itself in, in, in two different ways? And, and if it's not, or even if it is, is the solution to both these high-profile forms and the more pervasive cultural problem, is the solution to those the same? Well, let, let's start from the premise that the, the purpose of universities is to provide places that are dedicated to the pursuit of truth. And that's what, what faculty dedicate their lives to and what students participate in when they're students at the institution. If that's the function of the university, the conditions for the pursuit of truth, demand that one can pursue truth fearlessly. You know, trying to find the truth, you have to find truth on the edges of what we believe and heterodox opinions, uh, sometimes making mistakes along the way. And if at any point, it becomes risky to take those positions or to ask those questions. It compromises the fundamental purpose, the pursuit of truth. You, we stop looking in places we should be looking to learn more about ourselves and the world. And so I think this is, this is applicable both to faculty and to students. I think, you know, when, when, when it seems like the pursuit of truth is risky and that the penalty for missteps is severe, we turn in other directions. So we've spoken about how this is rooted in our greater cultural milieu and and how how this shares sort of uh, a common problem. And uh, of course, what dominates that a lot, I'm sure you've gotten this question frequently as well, we're in a politically polarized time. So is this from a problem on the right or on the left? I don't necessarily know if that's a fair question, but I'm interested in how you address uh, that question when it arises. Well, I would say the problem at universities is 
I don't feel the need to characterize it as a problem of the right or left. It's a problem of, of political asymmetry. That if an institution which is which should be grounded in pluralism and tolerance and dialogue uh, is is so dominated by particular perspectives to the exclusion of others, that's the that's the polarizing problem in universities. Now, whether you know this this there are it's possible this is something that could happen on the right and the left. I mean, I, you know, I don't think. I mean, it's not. Of course, we know that you know, you know, the the great majority of institutions in this country um, tilt leftward. But I don't. It's not that I blame the left. I just blame a culture that has allowed us to let our institutions of higher learning be asymmetrical in their leanings. So I'm I'm curious about your view on where professors and academics that are currently employed in just sort of uh, you know the the wide swath of of public universities and private institutions, sort of what they think about this problem in sort of their heart of hearts. And and I ask this because I can imagine a this could be a real problem that that silences many of them or or, or leads them to not talk about it uh, because of some of the incentives that we've we've been discussing, or that it's been a sort of gradual shift in which many of those professors and academics might have been captured and, and, and now support, or that many, both aware and sort of unimpeded, would just argue, well, the problem definition here is overblown. What's your sense of uh, sort of the broader community of academics' take on this problem? I mean, I guess the statistic that I would offer is that, you know, we announced a week and a half ago the, the launch of this University of Austin, that we're, that we're building this university, and we foregrounded in that launch the principles of open inquiry and civil discourse, that we believe those are the core principles of higher education, and those are the principles this institution will be committed to. In the course of a week and a half, we have received over 3,500 inquiries from professors at other institutions looking for employment at a university that doesn't exist yet. So, I mean, I think that's, that that's the number that's meaningful to me. And those are just the people who have reached out to us through our website. I mean, it's not even, you know, we haven't solicited any of this. So, you know, I think you can probably, it's probably fair to say that the number of professors who feel that way is much larger than 3,500. And the fact that folks, and many of these were senior people, endowed chairs, people who are at major institutions reaching out to us, asking when we're going to be hiring. Um, the fact that there is that, um, whatever that mass of, of professors may be in higher education indicates that, you know, uh, there are quite a lot of folks who are concerned about these things and that these folks are um, spread across institutions. Okay, I'm convinced this problem is real. Let's talk a little bit about the solution. I mean, the University of Austin is a new institution built from scratch. And that suggests that you who have come together to start this project viewed a reform of particular institutions or trying to fix universities um, that are already existing is, is, is too big or too inefficient uh, a way to address this problem. First of all, is that characterization correct? And what is the reason that a new university is required to make a hard pivot? One of the things that America does better than any country in the world 
is start universities. I mean, we're, we're a country of 4,000 some universities that all had an origin point at one time or another. And each one was born out of a particular necessity. It might be, you know, a geographic necessity. It might be because, you know, early on in our history, you know, uh, one one religious sect was was dividing itself off from another. There's there's a there's something that prompts the beginning of uh, of institutions in this country, and I think you know what we feel is necessary right now is um, a new institution that centers itself on principles of open inquiry and civil discourse and builds out from those principles to see what that, how that new institution might be similar to and different from the ones that exist. Um, you know, it's a kind of experiment. It's an entrepreneurial project. We don't yet know as the university gets built out, if we're gonna look, you know, 93% like every other university that's out there or 33%. Um, and we want, one of the reasons we made this announcement early on in our building process was it seemed to make sense to us that we would that we would want to spark a conversation around education, higher education today, and and build this institution in real time so that we could get feedback and critique and thoughtful input from the broadest range of people. I mean, in some sense, we're sort of crowdsourcing parts of this university, and it's it's actually working out that way. I would say many of the things that people have written about the institution so far, even those who are critical, have been. Many of them have been very thoughtful and have actually, we've sort of absorbed that and have been reflecting upon some of the things that maybe weren't quite evident to us as we embarked upon the project. So we're, we're, we're sort of conducting a kind of, you know, open, uh, uh, our development process is open so that it, can, that it can do exactly what the institution is committed to doing, uh, pose large questions and try to find answers to those questions. The question we're posing here is, you know, what is the purpose of higher education? What is the, what, how should institutions of higher learning be constituted to, to preserve the principles that are behind higher education? Uh, where have we succeeded in this country? Where have we fallen down? Um, our institution will be flawed, I'm sure, like every other institution. But in the course of creating it, we're hoping that we'll generate more light than heat, I would say. Well, certainly the announcement has generated some some light and attention, and and not just from the thirty five hundred prospective faculty that have uh, sent inquiries in. The University of Austin's founding trustees and the board of advisors is pretty stacked. I mean, just some of the names: Jonathan Haidt, Barry Weiss, Arthur Brooks. Uh, praise be upon him, former president of AEI. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, Jonathan Rausch, uh, David Mamet. I mean, the, the list of really interesting people from diverse programs is it's pretty spectacular. So the, the first question I have is, how did you get this band together? You know, it's interesting. It, it, this, this project emerged from some early conversations between a kind of core group. It was Barry Weiss, Neil Ferguson, uh, Arthur Brooks, part of the early conversations, Heather Hying. Uh, a fellow named Joe Lonsdale, who's outside of higher ed, but a, you know, very uh, successful um, tech entrepreneur, myself, and you know, we kind of came together. Um, I wouldn't say randomly, and I wouldn't say by chance, but you know, we were all sort of at one remove from one another, and we discovered we were 
hovering around the same questions and problems. So we met and started noodling over what to do about it. And then, you know, as we were having conversations, you sort of pull in the people around you, you know, Barry might've said, you know, I, well, I, I had dinner last week with David Mamet and he and I were talking about universities. And so we bring David into the conversation, you know, or, you know, Jonathan Haidt and I um, have talked for quite a long time about issues in higher education through Heterodox Academy. So he seemed like a natural person to turn to. So this kind of initial group of people just extended organically out from the center, you know, to the point where we have say, I think maybe 30 or so people involved at the start. We want the tent to be even bigger, um, you know, because there are still more perspectives and more voices that are important for us to hear as we build this institution. But it's a pretty, um, I'll say already a kind of rambunctious group of people. There are a lot of people in there with strong opinions and the conversations are lively to say the least when we think about the serious issues. And, uh, and that's, that's how we want it to be. I mean, again, this is an institution that's gonna be dedicated to robust dialogue, the exchange of ideas, exchange of opinions. Um, this isn't something we're gonna you know, design you know, with a, a spreadsheet and, and a, you know, PowerPoint. Um, it's a human enterprise. And so bringing together humans who have, <laughs> who, who've, who've lived in this world and experienced things, um, both some of the glories of higher education and some of the issues around higher education, uh, and then building up together an institution is, is um, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating thing to be a part of, I just have to say. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, one of the questions I have about this this group that's pulled together at, at the early stages, and I and I ask this because I imagine it will be reflected in the in the future faculty and the sort of ethos of the university, are just what are some of the important similarities in this group that sort of coalesce behind that ethos? And before you answer that question, my next one is what are some of the important dissimilarities that you think are important to the University of Austin's future? Similarities are clearly a passion for education, a, a conviction that education is the heartbeat of society, of a culture, and that if we get education wrong, the downstream effect of that is, is severe and possibly tragic. So these are all people who, who feel very convicted that education is the place where we need to be addressing some of our larger problems in society. Where, where folks are dissimilar is, um, you know, what that what that should look like. Um, you know, should it should we continue largely along the lines of the way universities have been constituted? Should we be introducing things into the bloodstream of universities that nobody's ever thought of? Um, do we lean into the the you know heavily into the traditional liberal arts? Do we ensure that there's room for technology and innovation? Lots of different opinions on, on these issues. And, and you know, what we find is um, emerging is a really, really nuanced discussions around these things. I mean, it's, it's really some of the most, I mean, I've been in education my whole career and this moment is, it feels so, um, so fruitful, so productive. The conversations are so rich and passionate you know, the, you know, it's, it's really, let's say, um, laying uh, rich soil for us to grow this institution out of. So I understand these are early days, but I want to get to, you know, just some of the simple nuts and bolts 
questions. And and if they're not uh, decided, that's fine. But uh, let's just do a, a short rapid fire. And and first of all, I want to ask, you have a, a sort of a, a set of trustees and advisors set up now. So what's the difference between an advisor and a trustee? So the advisors, for the most part, are, are folks who, the, the trustees are kind of the core, you know, let's say the core group of people who take responsibility for the formation of the institution as a whole, right? So these are the people who bear responsibility as board, as trustees, even fiduciary responsibility, you know, who are, who are really shaping the project as a whole. The advisors are folks who advise us in um, varied capacities, depending upon their individual interest and their expertise. And many of the advisors um, disagree with some of the choices we're making or disagree with each other. So, I mean, I don't want to use the team of rivals, you know, um, uh, analogy because it's not doesn't really feel like it's that. But you know, let's just say a, a multiplicity of voices, some of whom are very focused on particular issues related to the university, and some who are giving us kind of broad advice. But they're advisors; they're meant to be conversation partners. So, certainly, a team with rivalry, if if not a team of rivals. Certainly, and as it should be, there are really. Uh, um, interestingly divergent voices in the team, for sure. So I'm sure this was a strategic decision, but why Austin? For the barbecue, obviously. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Good answer. Right answer. The, uh, look, this is, Austin right now is the most um, uh, creative, innovative, entrepreneurial place in the country. I mean, I've only been here now for, for maybe five months and the people pouring into Austin right now who are here to build, create, invent in all fields, in technology, in education, in business. Um, I call Austin right now one big maker space. And, and that's what it feels like. And there's a cross-pollination. You know, I've met so many interesting people here, let's say at dinner parties, who are involved with like K through 12 projects um, or people who are doing interesting financial things that help us think about a financial model for higher education. And, you know, all, all everybody being in kind of proximity to each other, because Austin's really not very large, enhances the, the work that, that we're all doing. This university is essentially, an, you know, a, um, let's call it a startup, right? I mean, like, like these tech, it's a startup. We're starting from concept. And, and we've gathered the resources and we've assembled the team and now we're building it. And so Austin right now is the ultimate startup city. And so it, it lends, the, 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 the energy of Austin lends itself to the kind of project that we're building. Well, perfect, because I've got startup questions. Like, what about physical infrastructure? Right now, so in our first phase of operations, the job was to assemble the senior team, which we've done, and then strategic planning and all that, which we've done. And then we move towards a launch, which we've done. The second phase is now expanding the team out to, to execute. So hiring more people who can help us start to implement the plan. And part of the second phase is um, securing our location. And we are, uh, uh, I, I don't wanna say too much about it right now, but we're really pretty excited about uh, a particular location that we're zeroing in on. Uh, and, uh, and so that decision may be made relatively soon. And then we'll have that location and then begin, you know, the master planning at that location. Fantastic. Things are moving. So 
at that location when you launch. What kind of degree programs, courses, certificates will the University of Austin have? So we're beginning uh, with the plan to kind of roll out over the next couple of years, some master's programs. Um, and the reason we're doing that is they're, uh, they're relatively easy to launch. They're small format, you know, each will have a few dozen students and they'll give us a chance to, um, you know, kind of build up into our academic programming. Our plan is to start first with an MA in entrepreneurship and leadership. We're starting there really because as I said, we're an entrepreneurial institution. You know, we're an institution that is, um, is, is beginning with a plan and, and, and consoling that plan and starting and bringing ourselves to the world. So it, it felt sort of, it, we thought it'd be interesting to start with that as our first academic program as well. You know, how do you, how do you conceive of these kind of projects? How do you execute on them? So we're starting there. We're gonna to add to that uh, MA programs and uh, politics and, and public policy and MA program um, in education. And then, you know, hopefully by 2024, fall, we're going to launch our undergraduate program. Um, and that, at that point, um, you know, we'll be on our campus. The, the undergraduate program we're launching is, is uh, let's say, less than conventional in its, in its structure. Um, the first two years of the undergraduate program are going to be an intensive liberal arts curriculum, a common curriculum for all students, designed roughly on the Hutchins plan at the University of Chicago in the mid-20th century where students will study in, in uh, kind of equal measure, humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences, but, but study through those disciplines, um, the great questions, the great enduring human questions. You know, what is human nature? What is justice? What is liberty? What is beauty? And uh, look at these from a variety of different disciplines. The classes will be mostly um, seminar-based, discussion-based, and so for those first two years, we're thinking, you know, about the big questions that human beings face and thinking about how those questions have been answered up to this point um, through great works of, of literature, philosophy, works of art, uh, laboratory experiments, the classical experiments. Like how have we wrestled with these questions up till now? And then in years three and four, undergraduates will move on to programs that are going to think about how we wrestle with these questions from here forward. So rather than majors, we're going to have a kind of constellation of academic centers that are something like uh, research institutes or think tanks that'll be thematically organized, like education and uh, education and public service, politics and applied history, entrepreneurship and leadership, um, math, engineering, technology. And students, rather than have a major, they'll, they'll be joining these active centers as junior research fellows or junior fellows. And their education from there will be about taking thought and putting it into action, taking the big questions and thinking about, okay, you know, what is, what is liberty? What does that mean in the context of education? You know, what is justice? What does that mean if you're a scientist? Um, and then start working on projects that are oriented towards launching them into um, their professions. So it may be early to ask this, but everybody's going to want to know, uh, what about admissions? How are you going to look for students and decide on who is admitted? Well, right now, looking for students, I, I can't answer that question. I will say students are already looking for us. We had something, I think, like 
I, I don't remember the last count, seven, eight, 9,000 inquiries from prospective students in the first few days. Um, and again, this is for a university that's just being built. Um, so I think, you know, I, I have a feeling that there will be a lot of students interested in, in this institution. How will we admit them? We're, you know, we are, we're working on that. We want to, what we want to, what we want to bring to the university are students who have a deep sense of, of curiosity, a commitment to civil discourse, students who are willing to listen before they speak and speak in a deliberative way, you know, and, and finding those students isn't, um, you know, the, the, the normal channels of, let's say, the normal college admissions process may not be suitable for us, but we're, we're still ironing that out. Well, you, you have some time. We're looking for 2024, and that makes me ask. So sort rough timeline is 2024 undergraduate. Can you sketch out the timeline in broad strokes? So we're right now in fall 21. By fall 22, we hope to have our first master's program in entrepreneurship and leadership up and running. By fall 23, uh, two or three more master's programs by fall 24 to be admitting our first classes of undergraduates. And then the last question, what concerns or struggles do you have to do to get accredited? It's a pretty straightforward process. I mean, you know, the, we've, you know we've already started um, working with accreditors in the application process. You know, they've done this for thousands of institutions, accreditation and reaccreditation. It, there's a lot of work that goes into it because what you're, what you're showing to them is that you have uh, a, a curriculum that's of merit and that you have a financial plan that's viable. And um, you, there's this, you know, these massive checklists along the way of, of, of benchmarks that you go through. The process takes years, um, but part of the process is um, beginning to actually offer your courses with a kind of in a, in a provisional status where you know, sort of you begin admitting students even as you're working towards accreditation um, so the accreditors actually have something to assess in your programs. It's just a normal part of the process. So even though final accreditation might take five, six, seven years, it depends on the thing, we can, you know, we, we can actually start operating provisionally in advance of that. So you did mention that you've gotten some sort of pushback, lots of reaction. Um, it, it caused the splash. And whenever you cause a splash, you get some... Um, splashed back on you. I wonder what are some of the biggest critiques that you've heard or, or, or sort of pushback or appreciation? And uh, what are some of the things that you maybe believe now in light of that, that might have shifted your thinking just in the past two weeks? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think some of the critiques just come from the fact that we live in a culture where anything that is announced is immediately framed. Uh, <laughs> And we have this kind of pre-made frames we put on things, political and otherwise. So, you know, I would say a misapprehension that's been out there is that, you know, this is, um, you know, an exclusively conservative or, or right-wing institution. We have no desire to create that. I mean, that, that to us is, would, would not solve the problem we're trying to solve, which is to create institutions that are pluralistic and open and tolerant um, and as broad ranging as possible in perspectives and viewpoints. Um, but I think that you know, misapprehension came from, you know, looking at people on our advisory board and saying, well, they've got more than five people who are conservative, therefore it must be conservative. 
And I think it's just a kind of, you know, a, a habit of the culture today to define things that quickly in that way. Um, but I understand where it comes from. I mean, you know, in, you know, and, and but it's, you know, it's that a misapprehension. Um, what have we learned along the way? I think what's, what's clear to me that is that if we're going to be successful, and we have so much momentum now, so much support, but the, the, the clearest thing of all is that to make the world better, you have to build things. You can't be against things. You have to be for things. You have to stand for principles. You have to create a positive vision of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And, um, and to be very clear about that vision. I think so much of the static in our culture is oppositional, right? You know, things that we're against um, that somehow imply what it is that we're for. But I think we need to be for things and, um, you know, let, you know, let all the others, let the static fade. I mean, we believe very strongly in the values of civil discourse and open inquiry. And the core elements of civil discourse are three. You have to begin all conversations, all true intellectual inquiry from a position of intellectual humility. We're human beings. We're all kind of flawed and broken. Um, we actually know very little about the world as individuals. Start from that perspective. And then you have to accept unconditionally the absolute and equal dignity of all human beings. I mean, it's, that's just, that, 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 that's a given. We're all rational creatures. We're all subject to the, the slings and arrows of fortune. We're all in it together. And the third element is a passion for truth. You have to have a passion for truth, something that's gonna drive you towards truth seeking, even though truth remains elusive. So if you can create a culture, an institution, that fosters those principles, then you can create an institution that's dedicated to truth seeking. And that's what we're for. I mean, it's, it's not, maybe, that, maybe that's not very complicated, but that's what we stand for. I wanna set this up against the problem definition that we talked about at the beginning. We talked about universities having some functions that serve to self-censor or to you know, limit this inquiry. And I, I think that when most universities were founded, they would say, well, yes, we are committed to the disinterested pursuit of truth. So when you look at this founding time, what do you think the University of Austin needs to do to insulate itself from the same pressures that have made many other institutions um, sort of shy away from that pursuit of truth? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to articulate your principles very clearly. Um, you have to have kind of, let's say, foundational documents that enshrine in the institution, uh, structurally in terms of governance and otherwise, um, the things that will protect the core principles. Um, you know, the Chicago Statement on Academic Freedom and Free Speech uh, is a wonderful document. Um, and schools that adhere to that have a kind of sense of what it is that they need to be upholding. Uh, we completely intend to abide by the Chicago Statement. We'll probably come up with our own statement as well as part of our um, development and discovery process in that spirit, articulating the principles, creating structures of governance that 
think carefully about what has led us to this impasse and to try and put in safeguards and guardrails around that. Um, how, do you, how do you create hiring practices, for example, that don't allow people to lean into their natural biases and hire people that they agree with? Um, you know, that's a very important element uh, if we're going to preserve, you know, a, a, you know, a, a broad ranging set of, of perspectives on our campus. How do you create admissions processes that do that as well? That, you know, a, that explicitly um, seek out a broad range of opinions that try to attract students who, um, who are not like-minded, but who are eager to engage in the kind of the hurly-burly of, of, of difficult discussions. Um, you build these practices up from the principles and then you put the guardrails around them. Um, I, can we do this perfectly? I don't, I mean, nothing can be done perfectly, but I, there are a lot of admirable institutions out there that have stayed close to their principles. I look at St. John's College where I came from and, um, you know, for, for all, well, 85, 90 years now since the inception of the, of the, new, the new program of instruction, the Great Books program they have, um, St. John's has done a wonderful job adhering to its core values and principles because it was founded well. Um, you know, as we know in our own country, uh, you know, a sh the right kind of foundations uh, will lead to um, preserving the values over time. So, Pando, before I let you go, I want you to do me a favor because I have a son named Charlie and he's just at the perfect age range. If you guys start in 2024 to be in the inaugural class. So can you give him the elevator pitch? Uh, you know, not to uh, aim too high because, you know, he's still early on in high school. Uh, what would you tell prospective students about what they can expect if they apply to the University of Austin? I would say that our, a foundational principle that we abide by is that um, the purpose of education is not employment, it's human flourishing. Human flourishing does include meaningful employment, but you have to start first by understanding the world and yourself so that you can discern your pathway forward. Um, and so an education that begins by asking the most important human questions uh, in conversation with others, uh, in, you know, in the context of reading books and, and looking at art and, and studying the sciences, will enable young people to understand themselves in a complex and nuanced way and make sure that as they narrow their focus, as they think about how they wanna go from thinking to acting in the world, that they are matching their greatest talents with the world's greatest needs. And so that's, that's the trajectory that we expect our students to follow. And that's the path that we're trying to build. Fantastic. I'll send that elevator pitch over to him tonight before everybody else gets to hear it. Pano, thanks for taking time to come on the report card and good luck with a couple of years of hard work ahead for the University of Austin. Well, thank you so much. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to everybody out there who's thinking deeply about these issues. We, we all need to be doing this together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Pano Canolis. 
We'll include a link to the University of Austin's page and their announcement in the show notes. As always, I'd like to thank our producer, Wesley Armstrong, who makes this podcast possible. You can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you got this podcast. And when you're there, take a minute and leave us a review so other people will find the show. You can always send me comments, questions, or topic suggestions at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malmus. Thank you.